should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. I'm getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book. You can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Hello and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because how else are we going to make secret layer money? My name is Kevin and I'm joined as always by my co-host Bennett, who will be gone the next six months pursuing his dream career on the professional Jenga tour. (laughs) Benedict, what's a piece of fiction that you want me to read, watch, or experience? It's not not just the book club, like... (laughs) I mean, I mean, basically, this everything we read is fiction. Yes, yeah. yes, in no, a way, no, I get as it. In, like the bookshelf, I mean, rather. That's, that's oh, not... you know, I figured I'd give you a chance to, to, to do whatever you wanted. Okay. It's, uh, it's a free for all today. Okay, appreciate you. Um, I'm thinking, hold on. Mm. Uh, Dom Kashmuru, because that's one that you might not know. Never, I I feel like you've recommended that before. Yeah, maybe. It's anyway. It's Machado de Assis. It's a 19th century Brazilian novel, and I think everyone I'm, should read it. So now I'm a hundred percent. I know you've recommended it before because I'm sure. <laughs> I yeah. recall that. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Um. But yeah, you should read that. What about you? What should I read? Benedict, uh, oh, like you think I was gonna say you were going to read something? No. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I want you to play. Uh, the entirety of the Bioshock series of video mm. games. Okay. Uh, Bioshock One, Bioshock Two, investment that I Bioshock expected. Infinite. Well, All you right. know, I think it's the sort of thing where you, with your mind that works too much, uh, <laughs> would would play Bioshock One. And even though you've never read Atlas Shrugged, your awareness of all that libertarian <laughs> bullshit would yeah. just be popping off the entire time you play that game. Because that game is beautiful. It's beautifully okay. written and designed to portray the world uh, of the, the real dystopia. Uh, you know, exaggerated, obviously, but the dystopia of the Ayn Randian paradise. And is beautiful. And then is that, Bioshock... Is that the one with the big twist ending? Yes, the okay. big twist ending that everyone knows by now. Because yeah, yeah, the game yeah. came out like 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah, the Would You Be So Kind. Yes, or yes. Yeah. Uh, the second game in that series, Bioshock 2, uh, I actually prefer the gameplay of, but the story's not quite as good. Uh, but it's really about what happens if you take a utopian cult and place it in that. It's basically after, you know, the libertarian paradise has collapsed. It, well, it collapsed in the first one anyways. But, uh, and it's sort of like, I think the the uh, writers of the game talked about how they looked at a lot of like Jim Jones kind of stuff mm. and how that would operate in this world they had created. And then you would get to Bioshock Infinite and you would go, what the fuck? They ruined this whole fucking series. This was great until now. I get what they were going for, but this just doesn't work. It's not as good. Okay. And uh, and then that's how it would go. And I, I think you should play all those games. Cause I okay, really so you think them. I should play the last one and just be frustrated? And uh, no, no, I don't think you should do that. But, okay. Benedict, yes. uh, you might know uh, what it is we do here on mm-hmm. this program. But uh, there's some folks out there, they might not know exactly what it is. You know, people who haven't played the full Bioshock series. Uh, then I would say, this is the show where we go... 
Fukai, 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 the Japanese word for deep, to plumb the depths of right-wing thought by reviewing a chapter from a work of conservative nonfiction and in between taking a look at other examples of the right, doing their best to make America hate again. Benedict, start us off. Do you have a hot take for us this week? Yeah, it is the the inevitable... Conclusion. We both have similar hot takes this week, I'm sure. Possibly. Possibly. No, 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 not even that. Um, mine is that the inevitable conclusion of Musk owning Twitter is that, like, Truth Social actually becomes a real platform because people are just desperate for something, anything that replicates the experience. I was oh, going to say God. it would be the funniest conclusion, but it would not be funny. But no, the, no, I, be I just feel like it is the inevitable conclusion is that I Truth mean, I Social feel like it's is going to fail way its way into... I feel like it's the other way around. The actual conclusion is Twitter becomes truth social. Maybe, yeah, that could happen too. That I think that's really too. where things are going. Yeah, yeah, maybe. What about you? What's your hot take? And don't talk about the midterms, because the midterms that, already happened. You know that's what I was going to fucking no. talk about. Look, we are recording this episode on Monday, uh, the week of the midterm elections. Uh, normally we record on Sundays, but we had scheduling difficulties this week, so we do Mondays when we can't make Sundays work. Uh, so obviously they haven't happened yet. But by the time you hear this episode, dear listeners, uh, you will have some general idea of what sort of dystopian hell world uh, the likes mm. of Bioshock uh, that the United States is in for for the next foreseeable future. Um, mm. So it's too late for me to tell you to vote because, yep. you know, you'll be hearing this after. But here's me crossing my fingers. That's my hot take is that I'm crossing my fingers. That's good. I appreciate yep. the optimism. <laughs> Listen, several Senate races are within, like, seven of the closest Senate races are actually toss-ups. So we'll see if that Here's holds. my prediction. Here's my prediction. Uh, we're going to have Blake Masters and J.D. What's-His-Fuck, both literal fascists who want a fucking monarchy in this country. We'll, we're going to have a whole episode someday, soon, probably, about their fucking inspiration, Minchus Moldbug, this douchebag. Uh, and his whole bullshit ideology and how the intellectual dark web relates to them and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, literal fascists, though. They're they're gonna be in they're gonna be in the United States Senate, and then we're gonna have Arizona run by a fucking nutbag. We're gonna have yeah. fucking Herschel Walker, whose brain don't work good. It's gonna be bad. It's gonna be really bad. Let's see. I I have a bit more hope than you, I, but I am uh, I I, <laughs> I have zero. I'm hope. always disappointed. <laughs> I I don't think Blake Masters will win, but who fucking knows? We'll see. Anyways, Benedict, on to the housekeeping this week. Remember to rate and review us on the iTunes. Uh, follow us on the social medias at NYGBCPod on Twitter for now, and at NYGBCBen. Um, Maybe we'll go to that Mastodon thing? I don't know. No, we'll I'm not going to anything that makes me toot. Are you kidding? I refuse to interact with any toots. I will not be sub-tooting anybody. Like, are you fucking joking? Absolutely not. Good idea. Bad implementation. Um, yeah. Spooky World New World Order this week. Uh, I will admit I, I uh, did not prepare the Spooky World New World Order. That is my mistake. Uh, but remember, if you would like to become part of the Spooky World New World Order, you can tweet or post about the show on social media, recommending to others, send me a screenshot or tag us in it. Leave us a five-star review wherever you can. Drop me a screenshot to let me know. Make a donation to a worthwhile charity. Become a patron or just get my attention with something good. And because I didn't prepare, I will just say that all of you this week are part of our New World Spooky World Order. But only if you voted. If you didn't vote, yes. fuck you. Or if yes. you're not American, are you fine. You can have you know, pass, if you, but... Well, you, you should have gotten your Soros ballot in the mail That's true, if you're actually, not American. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, yeah. hopefully you got that in uh, on time. Anyways, Benedict, on to today's episode. And this is the final one for now in our uh, little arc about the militia movement. 
Uh, if you recall last time, we left off sort of skipping through the 2000s, which were a mm-hmm. low period for the militia movement. But as we all know... But a high period for the rest of us. Yes. Well, <laughs> were they really? Were the George W. Bush years a high period? the economic crash. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, take that one back. Yep. But as we all know, something was about to happen in this country that would bring the fire back to the militia movement. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Was it that we elected a black person uh, as president? Let's see how this story goes, Benedict. Okay, all right. Now, obviously, by 2008, the United States had been, at, you know, for the better part of a decade at war. Um, and given that the average term of service in the U.S. military at that time was 6.7 years, according to a Pew mm-hmm. Research study from 2011 that I found, um, around the time of Obama's election, the U.S. was also becoming flush with ex-soldiers and returning veterans who had been stationed overseas in a war that was often framed as a religious conflict or a fight for mm-hmm. freedom. And it's worth dwelling a little bit on the fact that the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, both because of timing and circumstance— took on a distinctly different character, both for those who served and those who remained at home. People In what sense? Sorry, could you expand on that a little? Yeah, I'm about to. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's like you think I don't prepare for these shows. Listen, I, do you just want me to sit here in silence and not engage with you? Because I can do that too. No, I, don't need I to like be when here. you give me a reason to make fun of you. <laughs> okay. It right, works. Uh, so <laughs> people probably remember or may have heard about George Bush's crusade comment in the wake mm-hmm. of 9-11, which was, uh, I believe, and I, I don't know why this stuck in my head, but it happened on September 19th. That's when he said it. Uh, I don't know okay. why I remember that. It makes no sense that that's, that's something I remember off the top of my head. Uh, but that drew the inevitable comparisons to the actual Crusades when the wars began. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's not as though that was something Bush was really the progenitor of. It's sort of a symbol of where the times had gone, right? By the late 90s and early 2000s, while also the time in which the militia movement was birthed, um, it was also the culmination of everything the Christian nationalist movement, and in particular, a strand of evangelical and Pentecostal Protestantism, had been pushing for. And obviously, Mm -hmm. we see this ballooning today, right, with people openly calling for Christian nationalism in the United States, Mm -hmm. as we talked about. But Political forces mixed with religion in the sort of political Christianity I have described before as a political religion was peaking Mm. during this time. And, you know, George Bush, I will say again, is sort of symbol of the culmination of this. George Bush was a dyed-in-the-wool, born-again evangelical Christian. He was who they wanted. I would say he's the last person that Christian nationalists would call a christian in the white house right i know obama and biden are both christians but they're not the right kind of they don't behave in right. the way that those people well you know obama behave, was a muslim right? but, true. yeah we all know that and uh, and, yeah. and uh, catholics aren't really christians we know that part well, also that is uh, the, we we haven't talked about it a ton but as someone who grew up catholic like evangelicals other protestants in the united states often do not view catholics as christians is it worse than being Muslim in their eyes? Oh no, is it... I don't think no, it. Okay. I don't think it's worse than being okay. Muslim. Okay. God okay. no, of course not. Why would it be to them? But sure. they don't view them as Christians, right? It's sort of it, it's it's a weird, stupid thing that uh, mm-hmm. I encountered when I was a kid with friends who weren't Catholics. Uh, but you know, by the 1980s, the majority of Protestants in the United States belonged to evangelical denominations, so they made up a plurality essentially of Christians in the United and just, States. Just just for people's. That means people actively trying to spread the gospel. That's that's what we're well, talking even, about here. That, that is an element of it, but evangelical is a denomination that encompasses things like the Southern Baptist Convention, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, a yes. I think that is where the the term comes from. Uh, but you know, well, it's that's, not, why, that's why the word evangelist kind of means messenger. Right. So. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, it, it doesn't take a scholar of religion to know that groups like evangelicals and Pentecostals have a higher percentage of or emphasis on end times and doomsday prophecy and stuff like that. And, you know, certainly more than mainline Protestants or Catholics. Um, mm. And then also those groups sort of grab on to any conflict or calamity they can as support for their prophecies of end times. Or, of course, uh, I don't know if you, you don't frequent the weird places on the Internet that I go, but obviously the fact that there is going to be a blood moon tonight, uh, something mm. that these type of people are always chatting about. And accompanying oh, many... fun story, quickly, yep. sorry. There's a, someone I met years ago in a hostel in like Lisbon or Porto somewhere. I had to unfollow on Facebook recently because he, <laughs> he became a life coach. Um, and then having become a life coach and as obnoxious as life coaches are, he then on Halloween put a post being like, I feel so sorry. Well, basically being like, it's a, it's a holiday accepted by the church of Satan. <laughs> you should be ashamed if your children celebrate it. I feel so sorry for the, the, the parents of children oh, who, great. or the good Christian parents who have to tell their children that they can't dress up on this satanic holiday. Oh, that's fantastic. Like, Dude, what happened? Someone I, you? yeah, someone I work with who I was in a meeting with the other day, uh, mentioned that they had like a nephew come over and they weren't allowed to celebrate Halloween and they didn't wow. expand on that, but I sort of knew just cause I know, you know, yeah. this is the area I, <laughs> I swim in regularly. I know exactly why they couldn't celebrate Halloween. Yeah. The devil's holiday. That is a, a, recognized witches. by the Church of Satan, which is <laughs> uh, Jeez. But you know, so so accompanying many of these folks was a corresponding rise in the belief in a post-tribulation rapture, i.e., that first a bunch of bad shit happens, and then all the Christians get zucked away to heaven. So mm. believing that first you have to go through all the the, the tribulation, the bad stuff. Uh, you have that book series that I'm forgetting the name of off the top of my head. Uh, um, there's a Kirk Cameron movie he made about it. I don't rem- I don't know why I'm blanking on it. Someone no in the idea. audience knows. Um, but we also see during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars a rise in the numbers and activity of evangelical chaplains in the U.S. military. As noted by the New York Times in 2005, who found that evangelical chaplains had nearly doubled while Roman Catholics and mainline Protestants had fell. As in the numbers of the military chaplain corps. And chaplains are meant to minister to all denominations and not to proselytize. But there are a number of reports and complaints by military members throughout the Iraq war period about the fact that evangelical chaplains actively were seeking to convert military members, as well as some, you know, obvious abuses like officers mandating troops attend services and all sorts Mm. of insanity that happens when you're in the middle of a a bullshit war. So I mention all of this to set the stage for the second rise of the militia movement we're talking about. Bringing the war home. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is from, have you, um, have you read Spencer Ackerman's book? It's not really the same, but it's a good book. No, I haven't. It's, um, it's about all the surveillance stuff and that came about because of the war that was just then like, Oh yeah, we just do this now. (laughs) Um, I like the idea. That's just how it is now. Yeah, it's great. Yep. It's great. But it's from this background that tens of thousands of military members were returning to the U.S., many of them primed for a doomsday scenario, if not indoctrinated into politics before, now fully steeped in the political religion of American evangelical conservatism, along with all the political trappings that that entails. 
And politics on the home front at that time obviously were not much better. As we've mentioned plenty of times, the dominant strain of American conservatism up until the 2016 election was the form of pseudo-libertarianism that viewed the government as inherently evil, evil, uncapable, unfit, etc., uh, coupled with the rise of conspiracism in right-wing society, from the Alex Jones New World Order types to Rush Limbaugh attributing every evil under the sun to the Chai Coms. And of course, white supremacy, separatism, and other forms of violent white extremism had never disappeared. They had just been mm. re-channeled in the Bush years towards immigrants, Hispanics, and of course, Middle Easterners and Muslims. Yes. So by 2008, the U.S. was in many ways primed for a resurgence of the militia movement, and resurge it did. Obviously, mm -hmm. a number of factors played into the actual machinations of the resurgence, one of them being the availability of social media. As I've said plenty of times, extremist movements are often early adapters of technology, particularly mm -hmm. communications technology. And yep. I'd also point to like the use of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies for supposedly anonymous payments as another example. Cryptocurrencies for crypto fascists. <laughs> Hey, you're probably the first person to ever come up with that. Oh, uh, yeah, nailed it. Yeah. And the second militia movement, as I'll call it today, the second wave or the second militia movement, whatever, had its early online space. Not as fun as waves of feminism. No, it's not. Uh, had its early online space on blogs, image boards, and, of course, MySpace. Uh, later followed by Facebook. And, well, it's mainly because MySpace was the first big, you know, social yeah, yeah. media site. Followed by Facebook and YouTube later. Okay. And they're nothing if not savvy marketers, which I mean not in the sense that they were actually good at creating things that look good or videos that are that are slick and well-produced in the objective mm. sense. Most of it is utter garbage boomer trash with random capitalizations. And but that's all you need. Well, honestly, in the fucking era of email forwards, yeah. anything is better than like, Ari, 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 have you seen this? Makes you think. <laughs> like. By the way, that brings me, one thing I talk about all the time, I think I've mentioned it on the show, is I am subscribed to all of the Trump emails. <laughs> I still get them. And they are nothing if not just the same obvious email scams that were running in the early 2000 mid 2000s right that's mm -hmm. all it is like they're they're all fucking scams click here for your reward uh, uh i got one the other day that was like here's your receipt for your purchase and you click <sighs> on it it's just it takes you to a place to go donate it's just like what the fuck okay. is all this shit uh, At least it didn't give you a computer virus. Right. But you're right that, th that they did know how to craft a message to the type of people they were seeking. Right. This exactly. would appeal to those. It's all about the target audience, baby. Yeah. They're it's just all about the target audience. If you fear monger about the destruction of America enough and immigrants invading and promises that the viewer or the reader could be part of saving the Republic. Right. In other words, just basic Fox News programming. That's all mm. it takes to get these sorts of people they were looking for. And another obvious factor was, of course, the election of Barack Hussein Obama. Mm, mashallah. <laughs> I think one of, <laughs> one of my favorite uh, SNL sketches that they did from time to time back then uh, was uh, Will Forte um, would be like a, a weirdo conspiracy guy with like a long hair wig and sunglasses yeah. who would always like find his way to a microphone and start talking. <laughs> and it would always come around to Barack Hussein Obama. It was just great. I loved it. Uh, but so obviously the consistent claims of the right that he was a socialist or a communist and a Muslim mm -hmm. 
activated people who held on to, you know, a obviously the <laughs> the bigotries against African Americans or Muslims or whatever, uh, and also the people who held on to that Cold Warrior anti-communism idea that again also never went away. We've seen that the John mm. Birch Society is still active today, and unleashed a new wave of anti-government fervor that I think had somewhat been held at bay during the Bush years in the general. But the Tea Party movement, which certainly sympathized with militias, and you'd often see militia types at Tea Party rallies, sort of mm-hmm. encapsulates the resurgence of that anti-government impulse. And it also shouldn't be overlooked that having a Republican president, by which I mean George W. Bush, uh, may have held the militia movement at bay in the 2000s, right? Despite things like the Patriot Act and digital spying torture that exploded in that time, generally, they could say that Bush was on their side. As far as some of the visceral motivating factors like LGBTQ rights, immigration, taxes, stuff like that. And mm-hmm. as much as people like Alex Jones pretend to be above the left-right paradigm, the reality is that the only complaint of the patriot movement, which is what they call themselves, by the way, I should I should just note that yeah. that sort of encapsulates the mishmash of militia members, sovereign citizens, tax protesters, conspiracists, mm-hmm. right? Basically the crowd at a Mike Flynn speech. That, that yep. They generally call themselves the Patriot Movement. Okay. Uh, but their only complaint with the Republican Party is that it's not far-right enough. Mm-hmm. That's the only real complaint they generally have. And a final key element of the resurgence comes from an idea that inspired a militia, that of the three-percenter. And okay. The three-percenter idea had its birth in 2008 on a blog called the Sipsy Street Irregulars, which was run by a man... Which I'm sure was completely... Rational. Absolutely, Benedict. This is yeah, yeah, this is yeah, not yeah, yeah. a total GeoCities mindfuck. Um, <laughs> but it was run by... I didn't, I'm not going to link to it, because uh, it actually still exists. Um, uh, oh, actually, the last time I checked it. But uh, I'm sure it's also on the Internet Archive, which is generally what I like to link to when I, I send people to things. But it was run by a man named Mike Vanderbo, which is how I'm pronouncing it. I have no idea if that's correct. It's spelled like B-O-E-G-H. I don't know, Vanderboog. Uh, Vanderboog. Ba- Van that's what I'm guessing. Van he was from Alabama, mm. right? He was okay. from Alabama. That's so. that's a Dutch-ass name. <laughs> but Vanderboog was an Alabama man who had been involved in the militia movement for years. Uh, in the 90s, he claimed to run a militia called the 1st Alabama Cavalry Regiment, although researchers at the ADL appear to believe he was the only member of that particular <laughs> militia. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Well, I'm here with the cavalry. Okay, where is? Well, it's just me and my horse, Nessie. Just me like, and my horse. That's a cavalry. That's all you need. I got a sword in the truck comes too. Here cavalry. I brought a I brought a hood too, just in case. Uh, he was involved with other militias along the way, right? He eventually cool. became sort of a big name in the militia movement. Uh, but before but we talk about through Mike, the first advanced first Alabama yeah, cavalry yeah. regiment. No. But before we talk about Mike, let's talk a little bit about the three percenter idea itself. And the three percenter concept is sort of a way to dumb down and popularize the ideas of the militia movement. You see, Mm. uh, they claim that only three percent of Americans were able to fight off the tyrannical British government and win our freedom. So we, if if we just have three percent of the population today, or even higher, maybe we could overthrow this tyrannical government and get our freedom back. That's a fair point. But the the British, the tyrannical British Empire, didn't have drones. To be fair. <laughs> also true. Also true. Um, I think we probably would still be in charge if we had drones. Yeah. Yeah, I think you would too. <laughs> I think I've probably seen some alternate history science fiction that had such an yeah. idea going on with it. Uh, 
But, you know, this is the sort of thing you saw spread all over right-wing social media at the time. I remember seeing it. I was still in my right-wing phase at that time. Uh, and mm. I remember seeing this 3% idea all around. Oh, only 3%. It only took 3% to throw off the chains of the British. All right, sort of a, it's a chain email idea, as we mm. talk about a lot. But, chains about chains. Yeah. As it turns out, the actual number of people who fought in the Revolutionary War was probably closer to 13%. Uh, the 3% number. Yeah, and then it's like the farmers that provide, you know, farmers that provided the food for those people. And then right. the, like, it the, takes a whole country to have a war. And, right. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> exactly. The 3% number comes from a claim that only 80,000 people served in the Continental Army, while the country mm-hmm. had a population of about 2.8 million. Mm-hmm. But the 80,000 number actually comes from the number of pension files and bounty land applications that the early U.S. government had. So it doesn't include all the people that died for Obviously it, not. For a start. Obviously yeah. not. It also, just by necessity, would not include any of the people who served in local militias rather than in the Continental Army. Right? There was a lot of a bunch of people who didn't seek pensions. There were people who would do that. All sorts of people would not be mm-hmm. covered under this number. <laughs> George Washington presumably did not seek a pension. No, no. And... It was like something he wouldn't need. <laughs> and historians think that the number is actually somewhere between 200 and 300,000, where we get our 13% from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Vanderbilt also at times has claimed that the 3% represented the number of U.S. gun owners who would refuse to disarm and would fight back against the passage of the next gun control bill, which is a bit chilling. Okay, but, uh, so he's just conflating things. You know, ah, I guess everything. Like, I can make a guess that anything is about 3%. Look, he picked like, a number and he had to do something with yeah, it, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are the chances of me waking up three minutes before my alarm tomorrow? I don't know, 3%? 3%. 3%. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, I don't think this guy was a very heavy statistician, so no. I'm not sure <laughs> what sort of uh, work he did looking into these numbers in particular. Uh, so Mike Vanderbilt was born in 1953 and first surfaced to public attention in the 90s militia movement. And to his credit, in 1996, he signed on to a document with other militia figures trying to distance the movement from neo-Nazis and white supremacists. So, Look at that. Yeah, he tried. He tried. Did it succeed? No, it did not. No. Uh, he not. also was one of the people who popularized conspiracies about the Oklahoma City bombing in an mm. online newsletter he was writing known as the John Doe Times which is a reference to a supposed John Doe number two that the FBI were looking for in the early days of the investigation, but wasn't actually a person who existed. It was just, okay. they thought they had, they had, they had a person, they thought there might be a second person. They were looking for him. So of course that's the root of a whole conspiracy theory. Cause I mean, there was a second person, wasn't there? Like, well, there was, but they thought person. there was another person at the scene. At the scene. Okay. That's where it comes from. Right. So okay. the, there was obviously a second person involved, but they, yeah. it's just one of those things like, yeah, you know, if there's a, something wrong that someone is incorrect about in the early stages of a massive investigation, yeah. well, it all just must be a conspiracy. Then. <laughs> People get stuff wrong in the early stages of a massive terrorist yeah. attack. Yes, they can. Uh, in the mid two thousands, he took part, in militia patrols of the southern border, the same type that were made notorious by David Duke's Klan Border Watch in the 70s, right. uh, which Nazi Tom Metzger also took part in. And then right. by 2008, Mike, while living Metzger on... Metzger keeps coming up. I love this. Yeah, you know... The only only one I was familiar with before you started doing these. Well, that's just because you're, keeps, you're a fanboy. Is yeah, why. yeah, I know, I know. Not of Metzger, let's no, be clear. No. <laughs> Someday somebody's going to clip all of our comments out of context and fuck us yeah. with them. Uh, 
But by 2008, Mike was living on disability income, despite his supposed opposition to such a thing that, you know, mm-hmm. consistency. Like Ayn Rand, famously. Consistency is not great with these people. No. Uh, although, but I should know, like, whenever we, we point out that hypocrisy sort of stuff, I should point out, I want these people to be able to get those benefits. Yeah. I, I just yeah. want them to be consistent in their beliefs. Well, no, but also they're like, I, I also understand the, the thing that they would say of like, well, it's, if it's there, I'm not going to say no to it. Sure. Like, I'm going to take advantage of the system. Sure, like. sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, Vanderbo started to build an online following with his Sipsy Street Irregulars blog and other activity. He was on social media all over the place, eventually managing to popularize the three percenter idea. And of course, its logo, which you've probably seen, the Roman numeral three. Uh, usually surrounded by a circle of 13 stars. Uh-huh. And the primary breakthrough in the three percenter idea was that in order to be a three percenter, you just had to declare yourself one. Right? Cool. That's it. Well, yep. you know, in the past, militias were focused on paramilitary training and coordination of local groups. Now, in the internet spaces of the late 2000s, you could be one just by writing a post or changing your profile photo. Right. Right. And well, just changing it to a big three. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many Roman numeral threes. I mean, if you could just Google, you know, do an image search for the Roman numeral three, just in like Twitter profile photos, you'd, uh-huh. you'd never be able to make it through the full list of all of them. Jesus. And many three percenters could and did form their own paramilitary militia groups. But more importantly, now literal keyboard warriors could join the movement in other ways that didn't require waking up early on a Saturday. And early 3%er Facebook groups, like the 3% United Patriots, the 3% was another one. Just, they're not creative with that name. And Okay, so, but Facebook groups didn't come in until like 2011, 20... 2012-ish? 2012, 2013, maybe? I'm, yeah. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, we're not still stuck in 2008. I'm, I'm moving okay, through the progression of okay, time okay, here. Okay, okay, Time forward. has moved on. Okay. Time, time catches us all. Mm-hmm. Okay, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, American Patriot was another one had thousands and in some cases tens of thousands of members. Uh, and like I said, a number of real-world real world militia groups in the 3%er mold also came together in real life. Groups like the 3% of Idaho, Washington State 3%ers, and Georgia Security Force 3% were, as their names show, inspired by the 3%er idea and mythology. Mm-hmm. And what was their focus? Obviously, it was... Oppressive government, right? Great, yeah. Really, just they wanted to carry out that justified violence that they Not always Not me being oppressed, though. Yeah. What do they What do they do when they institute the oppressive government and then 3%, a different 3% are like, actually, no, I would prefer not to have oppressive government. Like, how many 3%? There are at least 33 well, Benedict, different you groups you can of find 3%. out on Wednesday. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> in 2012, uh, Vanderbo wrote on his blog about the Affordable Care Act, quote, the health care law carries the hard f- steel fist of government violence at the center. If we refuse to obey, we will be fined. If we refuse to pay the fine, we will in time be jailed. If we refuse to report meekly to jail, we will be sent for by armed men. And if we refuse their violent invitation at the doorsteps of our own homes, we will be killed unless we kill them first. That was after the Supreme right. Court upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I he- do have to say... I know now is not good, mm-hmm. but 
it does give me some hope that these people have always been saying this and <laughs> none of it has ever happened. Like, it feels like this language is happening a lot and I, obviously it's scary and bad and mm-hmm. could happen. I'm not belittling that. But the fact that these people have always existed gives me, like, a moment of hope. See, I just chalked that up their incompetence. Because, like, January Maybe. 6th was an attempt. They're just fucking incompetent. Yeah. That, that's how Maybe. I view it. I mean, okay. at some point, just by sheer numbers and willpower, even through the incompetence, might be enough. <laughs> even I mean, through the incompetence, them, they're going to pull it off sometime. I three percent of three hundred sixty million people is a lot of people. That's yep. like ten million people. It's a lot of people. Math. You imagine it's trying math. to get ten million people to do anything? It's impossible. It's impossible. No, it's impossible. There's no way. Uh, but Vanderbilt also wrote a novel in two thousand eight titled Absolved. Uh, which appears to be along the lines of a Turner Diaries or Hunter. Uh, I haven't found it anywhere to actually take a peek, but a description of it that the SPLC wrote says, quote, In the introduction, Vanderbilt called the book a cautionary tale for the out-of-control gun cops of the ATF and a combination field manual, technical manual, and call to arms for my beloved gunnies of the armed citizenry. Militia fighters in his book denounce gay marriage and gun control laws, and it features a bloody shootout between law enforcement and a man who has stockpiled arms that prompts the militiamen to plan a far-reaching campaign to murder government officials. Could also be a, a, a reasonable approximation of some, many of the other works of right-wing militia literature out there. <laughs> yeah, like I said. About right. And in 2011, the book was apparently among the inspirations for a plot by militia members in Georgia to attack four cities with ricin, blow up federal buildings, and assassinate government government officials. Uh, The 73-year-old leader of that group, Frederick W. Thomas... Had fifty-two firearms. Why do these motherfuckers always have middle initials? <laughs> I, just... <laughs> I mean, everybody does. I wonder if it's just a thing. Like when you become a suspect, media starts using your middle initial. I Maybe. wonder if that's what it is. I saw the. Uh, did you see John Oliver yesterday? No, I didn't. They uh, he Stephen K Bannon and the K stands for Kevin and he made a <laughs> made a big joke about how sad that was so sorry fuck you fuck <laughs> you I'm no longer a, I'm no longer a fan I'm no longer a fan uh, he had fifty two firearms thirty thousand rounds of ammunition ammunition and had already begun milling ricin from castor beans luckily <laughs> luckily. The arms dealer that they had attempted to purchase C4 and silencers from for their attack was an undercover agent. Oh, thank God they didn't get the silencers. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God they only had the guns. Why do these people always want silencers? They always want silencers. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get C4, but then just so (laughs) nobody notices, we're going to put silencers on the guns. Of course, a huge fucking explosion, but then nobody, we don't want anyone hearing the gunshots. You know what it is? It's because. Do you think like, they put silencers in the C4 and just hope it doesn't make a noise when it explodes? Like It's because all these people are dorks who read too yeah. much Tom Clancy and think they're fucking special forces or some shit and they're going to go in. And really, you if you watch videos of these people every time, Benedict, it's a bunch of fat guys in the woods. Every fucking one. Every fucking goddamn one of them. There's yeah. like two people who are in shape. The run, the rest are like over 50 and have massive paunches sticking out from underneath their body armor. I, I mean, same, but at least I'm not trying <laughs> to overthrow the government. No, you have body armor for other reasons. Uh, <laughs> it's because the queen's, uh, well, the king's coming for you now. Yeah. You got to stay safe. Always, yeah. Uh, but, you know, the three percenters uh, also showed a shift in militia ideology. Inasmuch 
as it was a shift back to a pro-American, if anti-government, stance. We talked a lot in the last episode on this topic about the 90s militia view of the government as irredeemable, controlled by Jews or communists or whoever, the nation is corrupt, the white supremacist ideas that permeated them, but this new second militia movement seems to me to have framed their ideas more in terms of national renewal and revival. And that becomes a lot more apparent, especially when Trump comes into play around 2016, 2015, 2016. Of course, Vanderbo's history of extremism also didn't prevent Fox News from having on in 2012 to discuss the Fast and Furious scandal. Okay. Because Fox News loves them some fucking crazies. We give, so, we give scandals the most chaotic names in this country. Oh, Just is ridiculous. We fucking do. I, well, actually, I think Fast and Furious was like the code name that the DEA okay, gave. Or well, the still, ATF whatever. Gave. At least we didn't turn and it like, into Fast Gate and Gate Furious Gate. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really like to think there's like the guy who named it was just a huge uh uh fucking wa- oh, what's the walk walk what's Walker's first Paul. name Paul Walker yeah, fan just a huge Vin and Diesel he, guy just fucking just, loves just, Vin Diesel like. <laughs> he's like oh man I just I just wanted to give it a cool name I really love those movies and I made my car look like the one from the second one I don't know any of the cars from those movies I've literally never uh, seen a second of those movies unless it was in a, on a trailer that I was accidentally watching. Yeah, I think at one point they say, you know what? I feel like going fast and furious. Seven. I feel like that's a line from the movie. Yeah, they have to get the exact (laughs) name of the movie. (laughs) It's one thing I know, and that it's it's about family. (laughs) Uh, But the other main group we're going to be discussing today, Benedict, is one I'm pretty sure most people have heard of before, Mm -hmm. the Oath Keepers, founded by the one and only Stuart Rhodes. Okay. it's virtually impossible to discuss the Oath Keepers without discussing Stuart. Not only because he founded it, but also because it was essentially an extension of his will and ideas. Mm-hmm. So, Elmer Stuart Rhodes. Elmer. Fuck you, Elmer. Was born in 1966. It's good for him f- that he changed that. <laughs> oh, that he, that he uses his, his Stuart name. You can clearly see why. Although, you know what? Elmer is a much more apt name for him because I kept thinking of Elmer yeah. Fudd, and that's really who this dipshit is. <laughs> I'm uh, hunting Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> I would pay him to say that. I would pay him to say that. I'm gonna I, I, uh, I'm gonna perfect his voice and see if he's on cameo. Yeah. See if he's on cameo. <laughs> I'm not giving him money. I will do it. I'll pretend to be him on cameo. <laughs> But Elmer was born in 1966 in Fresno, California. And so joined post the US Army. Elmer Fudd being a thing. Post Elmer okay. Fudd, yep, yep, yep. Uh, and joined the U.S. Army where he became a paratrooper until he was severely injured in a training accident and discharged. Mm. Uh, after the military, he attended the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and upon graduating in 1988, taking a position as an intern supervisor for Congressman Ron Paul. Mm. Of course, there's always a Ron always. Paul connection with the crazies. Uh, he then attended Yale Law School, which he graduated from I in 2004. Why do all the worst people attend Yale Law School? Jesus Jeez, Christ. I don't know, man. I don't fucking know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, obviously, he's not stupid. He's just dumb. Yeah. He, he's, not un, he's not incapable of He's not of, stupid. You know, he's just wrong about the facts. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and in many cases, I think willfully. Yeah, I think willfully. He's, he's a fucking lunatic. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about him. Uh, for a minute here, but we'll see some of the things he's he's done and said. Uh, but of course, like I said, uh, in, in, he was a big Ron Paul guy. So in 2008, he volunteered on the Ron Paul presidential com- campaign. Um, but we have to address that as bumbling and funny and dumb as Stuart may seem, 
he is a truly awful, nightmarish human being. And uh, there's a good AP article titled "From Yale to Jail" that I'll link in the show notes. <laughs> I love uh, that has that so it's much. a great one, right? <laughs> Play on from Yale to y'all. Yeah, I like it. Oh, that's uh, I think but, that's better. Yale to jail, absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty Fuck good. It's pretty good. Let's go. Uh, his ex-wife Tasha Adams met him in 1991 when she was 18 and he was 25, and Stewart decided that he was the one who needed to attend college before his wife. So he told her that she needed to quit her job teaching ballroom dancing and become a stripper to support them both. Uh, she was not very comfortable with this. At least it's tangential. Like, at least it's not, hey, quit your job as an astrophysicist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was raised Mormon, and this was not something she was very comfortable with, that but she right. did it. She did it, and she quit that when she got pregnant with their first child, and they moved back in with their parents. And obviously, the people I feel worst for are Stuart's children. Mm-hmm. Um, Always. Three of whom gave an interview to Hate Watch, the news outlet of the SBLC, which is incredibly revealing and heartbreaking, right? The kids describe the Oath Keepers as deforming their lives. And I'm just going to read some quotes from them. There are three children, uh, Dakota, Sedona, and Sequoia are the ones who were interviewed. Dakota said, quote, It didn't impinge on our lives. It deformed our lives. Our lives happened to the breathing space left around the Oath Keepers. And then Sedona. There was no independence from it whatsoever. According to him, it was our brief moment of existence before the world ended. Sequoia. From my childhood and early middle school years, I did not think I had a future. He told us that the world was going to end. And then Hate Watch asked them, were you able to talk to each other about all this while it was happening? Dakota responds, Sedona tried to talk to me sometimes, but I didn't want to listen. I was fully wrapped up in the brainwashing to a degree that they were not. I was completely hung up on Stuart's approval of me and whether I was good enough and my responsibility to see the family through the apocalypse. Then I shifted 180 degrees to plotting against him. Sequoia. I was definitely brainwashed to the extent that I thought the world was going to end. We were homeschooled in theory, but I had to teach myself how to read and do math. But because the world was going to end, it was hard to even see a reason why I should learn to read. I had no future. I mean, it's pretty typical abusive situation in which you're made to hide everything, but there's an added layer. Sedona. And moving constantly was extremely isolating, like changing address all the time. The kids also described the home as violent, abusive, and chaotic. The interview, be- the, the interview began with a description of how they literally escaped the house mm-hmm. uh, when, when they finally, their mother and them left uh, uh, Stuart behind. At first, they tried to wake up at 4 a.m. and sneak out, but he was awake at that time. Um, so they snuck their belongings out to the car mm. uh, over the period of, of, I don't know how much time, they didn't specify, and told him that they were going to the corner store, which he responded by asking them to buy him a steak. Okay. It's just yeah. it's just bad, man. Yep. Uh, the, kids, the kids were all homeschooled as well. Uh, and Sedona, one of the daughters, describes that all he ever wanted to teach them about was the American Revolution and that Stuart thought that he was going to be a new founding father. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's that kind of thing. Pure delusions of grandeur. Absolute 100% Stuart had delusions of grandeur. Uh, the family moved around constantly from place to place, riding the gun show circuit, a place we know that militia types like to congregate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the actual founding of the Oath Keepers t- officially took place in 2009 at a rally in Lexington, Massachusetts, the site of the first battle of the Revolutionary War, with a few dozen ex-military and law enforcement individuals present. And by 2011, the Oath Keepers claimed to have 30,000 members across the country. Although, like with all militia membership claims, that's most likely a lie. Mm-hmm. But they 
definitely did at least have thousands of members, making one of the largest militia organizations in the country. And Elmer, I keep calling him Stuart, I'm going back to Elmer because fuck him, was a very good propagandist and organizer for his group. He made regular appearances in the media, Mm -hmm. from Fox News to Alex Jones, and made a number of alliances with Tea Party groups. Okay. But the real question, right, is is what is the Oath Keepers about? Mm Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's kind of boring because it's not really that different than all the militias that came before it, right? Other than what I would argue is the characteristic of this second wave of militia movements where they position themselves as pro-America, even if they're against the government, uh, more so than the previous generations of the movement, of course, right? So they believe that martial law was impending. We heard that before. That the UN was a tool of New World Order takeover. That the National Defense Authorization Act was treason, specifically the 2012 version, which I guess had like funding for drones in it or something. Uh, they see, they that, know about the drones. They know about yeah, the drones about being the drones. a problem. They they yep, see that. Yep. yep. Uh, that the prepper and survivalist movements were under attack, and of course that the Second Amendment was under assault. Mm-hmm. And central to the Oath Keeper identity and ideas is, of course, the oath of the Oath Keepers. Okay. The so-called Oath Keepers Pledge, which is really just, is it just a the list. Fourteen words. <laughs> that might be more. Uh, um, that that might be more uh, something Stewart says to himself personally mm, okay. uh, than out in public. He's very good. I will. I will credit Stewart. Uh, I don't know if you have to give it to him. You know, you never have to give it to him. <laughs> you absolutely do not have to hand it to him. To quote a drill tweet. <laughs> But Stewart certainly knew all about optics and knew about having non-white individuals visible within the movement. Mm. He was certainly uh, well aware of that, especially since he knew, you know, uh, during the time of the Ron Paul campaign, when the emails came to light, he was someone who was out there being like, nah, Ron Paul's not racist. I'm part Native American. He literally said that. That was one of his things. Uh, But the pledge uh, is really just a list of conspiracy theories that they pledge not to take part in or to fight back against. And it is, I'm going to read you the whole list, Benedict. This is great. Great. So, number one, we will not obey orders, and not is always capitalized in these, uh, obey orders to disarm the American people. Number two, we will not obey orders to conduct warrantless searches of the American people. Mm. Number three, we will not... Obey. If I keep getting louder with the knots, Don't, I'm gonna lose yeah, my voice by the end like, of the list. It's like beam. You know those ones on YouTube that are like speeds, are like doubles in speed every time they say <laughs> a certain word. That's you, but yeah. yelling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we will not obey orders to detain American citizens as unlawful enemy combatants or to subject them to military tribunal. Who do they think we is will giving not- these orders? You're not in the police. Well, these are all classic New World Order uh, conspiracy theory no, things. No, I know, but like, who, like, and, who are they receiving these orders from in their heads? Well, I would point out that one thing about the Oath Keepers that uh, I don't know how if it's something that was characteristic of the 90s militia movements. They have a large number of police officers cool. as members of, of the Oath Keepers. Day. Why wouldn't they? Um, and there was a membership list that was leaked, I think it was last year, or maybe earlier this year, uh, and the, by uh, um, the, name of, the name of the group escapes me, but it's one of those. Oh, uh, Distributed Denial of Secrets is the name of the group, mm. uh, the Journalist Collective, uh, who leaked it out. And the ADL and I think the SPLC also did an analysis of it and just went, wow, lots of cops. Yeah. Lots of cops. On a lot the of cops here. Basically a lot of cops. my reaction. <laughs> lots of active duty military, stuff like that. Uh, next, we will not obey orders to impose martial law or a state of emergency on a state. 
We will not obey orders to invade and subjugate any state that asserts its sovereignty. We will not obey any order to blockade American cities, thus turning them into giant concentration camps. What the fuck? It's just New World Order what conspiracies, is going man. On with, like, but, but who? What? It's classic New World Order I know, conspiracies. But like, what, what in is. what fucking world? In their world, in the world of their minds. Yeah, I know. Uh, we will not obey any order to force American citizens into any form of detention camps under any pretext. We will not obey orders to assist or support the use of any foreign troops on U.S. soil against the American people to keep the peace or to maintain control, both of which are in scare quotes. We will not obey any orders to confiscate the property of the American people, including food and other essential supplies. We will not obey any orders which infringe on the right of the people to free speech, to peaceably assemble, and to petition their government for redress of grievances. Uh, and And... Like I said, Benedict, that is just a list of classic New World Order conspiracies. Mm -hmm. And you got to wonder, right? There were people who maybe didn't know all about the Oath Keepers who were showing up at meetings and said, well, that's cool. They're like, yeah, we're not going to take away guns and stuff. And by the time they got to, like, number six, what were they thinking? Like, oh, is that something that's happening? Uh." By the time they got to the end of that list, how were they still standing there? I have to wonder that there was some pretty comical I know, you've got to be too embarrassed to leave at that point. You go, (laughs) I I have to stay till the end at least. Yeah, you're like, oh, God, fuck, I can't believe I gave Stuart my phone number. Shit. Oh, man, he's going to call me this weekend. Uh, But so the Oath Keepers have a strategy that has worked and gotten them a number of members and millions of dollars in donations. Uh, much of which has gone to adult stores that Stuart frequents, as was uh, uncovered in some of his recent litigation. Uh, one thing they have done is to form community preparedness teams, which were originally called civilization preservation cells. That's what they originally chose to call them. CPC. Which is supposed to be cool. for the impending collapse. Um, another, of course, is infiltrating the Tea Party. Rhodes and other leaders have spoken at countless Tea Party events across the country since the founding and have actively attempted to associate themselves with the Tea Party. Um, the Oath Keepers sponsored the race car of NASCAR driver Jeffrey Earnhardt. And no, I have no idea if he's related to the other Earnhardt. Cannot tell you. Uh, they put up billboards surrounding military bases around the country, and they've sent numerous care packages to military members that include Oath Keepers stickers, hats, patches, propaganda, all sorts of stuff. And of course, like the militia groups before it, the Oath Keepers had numerous members who were inspired to violence or just utter stupidity. <laughs> uh, in 2010, for example, Darren Huff, a Georgia Oath Keeper, traveled to Tennessee with an AK-47 to make citizens' arrests um, of officials who had refused to indict President Obama. Where do citizens' uh, arrests come from? Is that like a is that anywhere in any legal document, so, or is that just a thing that people made up? State by state, it's different, but citizens' arrests are a real thing. And it's not like, it's not the sort of thing where, like, I've decided that you've committed a crime, I'm citizen arresting you. It's not like that. But some people think it's that. Well, it's something that I remember uh, studying for when I took the bar exam. Um, and I, I, I only remember the basics and at the bar exam, they just teach you like the general rules, right? And this okay. is like generally how it works. And there's some variation state to state. So maybe they teach you the major rule and the minor rule. And then on the test, they'll tell you this state follows the majority rule. So maybe you have to follow that. I don't remember all that for this, but the general idea is in most states, I believe if you witness someone committing a felony, 
you mm. can perform a citizen's arrest and detain gotcha. them for the actual officials who will then arrest them. But not right? a state, not a state. It's not like drive. you slap handcuffs on, put them in the back of your Subaru and drive them down to the station. It's not like that. Like you have the ability to detain them and not face civil or criminal charges for, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, kidnapping or uh, unlawful uh uh, why am I blanking on legal words? I'm a fucking lawyer. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but what's the word for when you keep someone in a place and don't let them go? Why am I kidnapping? Blanking? No, there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, false imprisonment. That's the one. False yeah. imprisonment. Uh, so that's that's what it is. But they all, you know, it, it goes with the sovereign citizen idea stuff, right? They really think that they could do this stuff. And there's just like some sort of secret laws that aren't really out there in the public and blah, blah, blah. Uh, in April 2010, the president of the Cleveland chapter of the Oath Keepers, Matthew Fairfield, was arrested on child pornography charges, and a search of his home uncovered a live napalm bomb and dozens of other explosives. Uh, others have been arrested, right. for example, for having a stolen military grenade launcher, plenty of terroristic threats, numerous weapons charges, the list goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And. There's a lot of overlap between the three percenters and the Oath Keepers, as one would suspect, especially since the three percenters are less of an actual organized militia group in most states than an ephemeral online idea. So you'll often see, yeah. like, somebody wearing an Oath Keepers patch and also a three percenter patch. There's, it's sort of like that. And the Oath Keepers themselves are not strictly a paramilitary militia like the organizations of the 90s, and it definitely shows a real pivot in the second militia movement as opposed to the first. White supremacy is certainly much less pronounced in the Oath Keepers and other second wave militias, inasmuch as many are not explicitly white supremacist and have non-white members, but many of their actions and the people that they support show that the white supremacist strain definitely lives on. Uh, take, for example, the first action the Oath Keepers took that really brought them to public attention outside of the right-wing media sphere, mm -hmm. their presence at the Ferguson protests of 2014. Oh, good. That's, I'm sure that went really well for everyone. Yeah, yeah. So many remember, but some might not, that the Ferguson, Missouri protest of 2014, and by the way, like, I, I live right now maybe 25 minutes from Ferguson. Mm -hmm. um, I drove up there uh, after I got my car not long ago because, you know, I just sort of wanted to see, you know, mm -hmm. this is a big, in the area the I swim in and the stuff I, I read about a lot, this is a big deal. I mm -hmm. wanted to just sort of see the area and see what it's like. It's, it's a neighborhood. It's just a neighborhood. Um, yep. But they were pro the, the protests were sparked by the police killing of Michael Brown. Mm -hmm. And it is also the event that brought Black Lives Matter to national attention as well. Mm -hmm. Although Black Lives Matter had first started formulating online after the killing of Trayvon Martin down in Florida. Mm -hmm. Murder of Trayvon Martin. Yep. Um, and during the protest, as often happens, at night there was some looting and some vandalism. That sort of stuff goes along. Bad actors glom onto pro protests and use them to go out and do the shit they want. Um, and Oath Keepers, of course, showed up and positioned themselves on rooftops with their guns, claiming that they were there to protect local businesses from the protesters. Of course, nobody had asked them to do this, and the police even asked them not to do it. Uh, but to their slight credit, again, you don't have to hand it to them, at some point, <laughs> at some point the Oath Keepers aligned themselves with the protesters rather than the police and claimed that they were protecting the protesters from the police. After the Ferguson police chief banned them from open carrying weapons in the city. I think that might be why they might have flipped sides on that one instead. I don't think it had much to do with their actual sympathies. Mm -hmm. But one of the leaders of the group, Sam Andrews, in August of 2015, 
returned to Ferguson to hold an open carry march of African-American residents of Ferguson. Stuart Rhodes and the Oath Keepers' leadership did not support this, of course, uh, saying that they didn't approve of the optics. And of course, you know, what are the only optics that changed? Well, it's the color of the people carrying the guns. That's mm-hmm. what it changed. That's always what it is. Yeah. Yeah, and Sam Andrews, to <laughs> his didn't, credit... There weren't many fans of the Black Panthers among gun nope, activists, no, I will tell you that much. Sam Andrews, to his credit, resigned from the Oath Keepers after that, saying that it showed Rhodes' racist double standard. So, mm-hmm. good That's on him. I still good, think yeah. you're a dum-dum, but at least... <laughs> you may have to hand that. it to him? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what he did while he was still a member of the Oath Keepers. Maybe yeah, there's not a whole true. lot to hand to him. Uh, the Oath Keepers were also in Ferguson on the one-year anniversary of either Michael Brown's death or the beginning of the protest, uh, you know, the acquittal um, or the announcement that they weren't going to do charges. I don't remember which one it was. Uh, to provide security for InfoWars personnel who were there shooting propaganda. So isn't that great? Cool. But all of this led to great success and notoriety for the Oath Keepers, who raked in, as I said, millions of dollars in donations. Uh, there's a photo that's made the rounds recently of a beardless little boy, Ted Cruz, uh, speaking in <laughs> Iowa in, I believe, 2013 in front of a giant Oath Keepers flag that was flying behind him. Uh, right. Rhodes and others were giving speeches at Republican events, getting on Fox News, and generally making the rounds. And I think even before January 6th, most people had heard of them. I certainly know I had, but it's hard for me to gauge you know, what portion of the population has awareness of the things that I generally pay attention to. But by the time of 2009, the militia movement was surging, going from around 50 active groups in 2007 to over 200 by the end of 2009. And Mm -hmm. the ADL estimates that by 2010 or 2011, the militia movement had over 100,000 members nationwide, which is big. It's a big surge. It's not 3%. It's certainly not 3%, but it's a big surge. Yeah, it's not nothing. But what would a second wave militia movement be without its own set of armed standoffs with the United States government? Great. Let's go. Yeah. Right. We got to get into it. So Cliven Bundy was oh, born no. in 1946. I, I regret everything I just said. <laughs> Backpedal. Switch off. Save yourselves. And was raised in a Mormon family in middle of nowhere, Nevada. He holds sovereign citizen views, such as denying the authority of the federal government over federal lands, claiming instead that the land belongs to the sovereign state of Nevada. And that's a weird thing to me, because no one, no one thinks that Nevada should be a sovereign state. No, it's not even Clive Bundy. No, not really. Uh, He has claimed that federal courts have no jurisdiction over him because he is a citizen of Nevada, uh, the state of Nevada. Not the territory of Nevada. That's a sovereign Mm. citizen distinction that he tries to make. Um, He has supported the constitutional sheriff movement, uh, once ordering the local sheriff to arrest federal agents and deliver their guns to Bundy within the hour. If if sheriffs were all powerful, the last thing they would do is listen to fucking Clive Bundy. (laughs) Like if I was a sheriff with unlimited power and Clive Bundy was like, hey, arrest that FBI agent, I'd be like, fuck you, I'm arresting you. There's a lot of crazy sheriffs out there, man. There's a lot of crazy sheriffs. In fucking Nevada, no doubt. And of course, he's got, quote unquote, troubling racial views. Mm. uh, Telling media during an interview in, uh, well, actually, I'm just going to play the clip for you. Here yeah, so that you you can't be clipped saying the words that he yeah, said. Yeah, you know what? I, I'd, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. Give me one second here to pull it up. I want to tell you one more thing I know about the Negro. When I when I go went uh, go through Las Vegas, North Las Vegas, and I would see these little government houses, 
and in front of that government house, the, the door was usually open, and the, the, the older people and the kids, and there's always at least a half a dozen people sitting on the porch. They didn't have nothing to do. They didn't have nothing for their kids to do. They didn't have nothing for their young girls to do. And because they were basically on government subsidy, and so now what do they do? They abort their, their young children. They put their young men in jail because they never, they never learned how to pick cotton. Ooh. Yeah. And I thought it wasn't going to get worse, and then it did. Oh, oh, it's about to get worse. It's about no, to get worse than that. I think we're let. Mm, okay. Mm. Are they better off as slaves, picking oh, cotton, no. having family life, and doing things, or are they better off under government subsidy? They transfer. They Yeah, they didn't get no more freedom. They got less freedom. So yeah, you uh, less freedom over than when bit. they were slaves. Are you but kidding? He, he says, Shut "I up. often wonder whether they were better off when they were slaves." Is his his his? He's just asking questions. Ben. With like, the the implication being that yes, he thinks they were. I mean, I don't, I don't know anyone who could ask that question and not come down on no. Yeah. But I think Cliven might. But I, I don't think, think you ask that question without implying that you think the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's not a great guy, but yes, troubling racial views, I would say, <laughs> is an accurate. But the Bundy standoff, as we know it, uh, had its roots back in 1954, when the Bureau of Land Management issued grazing permits to David Bundy, whose mm. son at the time was the seven-year-old Cliven, for mm. cattle grazing on public land in southeastern Nevada. And in the 1990s, the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, not Black Lives Matter, put together a conservation plan to protect the endangered desert tortoise, which included about 800,000 acres of protected habitat, which included in part the Bunkerville allotment, which was the land Bundy had been grazing his cattle on. And rather than selling back his grazing rights and pursuing a new permit on unprotected land, Bundy decided to stop paying his grazing fees in 1993, and as a result, his permit was canceled after becoming delinquent in 1994. So courts consistently ordered that he was trespassing by grazing his cattle on public land without a permit, and unpaid fees and fines added up year after year until by 2014, he owed around a million dollars in fines and back awesome. fees to the government. And for I, context... Uh, sorry, just a quick side note. I know they have nothing to do with each other, but mm. I cannot stop my brain from being like, which one of the Bundys was Ted Bundy? <laughs> It's yep. uh, absolutely where my brain goes every time. <laughs> oh, By the way, there's a great uh, there's a great all in the family uh, review recap um, by a YouTuber I really like called Jose. Uh, you can check that out. He went through ev the whole whole show from beginning to end. Uh, or, well, what am I thinking of? No, yeah, was it all in the all in the family is Ted Bundy, right? I don't That's know, the show. I, I don't remember. Anyways, um, so for context, at that time, according to the Oregonian, the newspaper of record, and Oregon. Oregon, uh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> the total amount of fees owed nationwide to the BLM, excluding Bundy's, was $237,000. Everyone the, in the okay, entire country who had grazing fees... <laughs> don't use the... Is it just got, he got confused and thought he owed money to Black Lives Matter? I and don't not know. to Not I to the Bureau know. of Land Management? And he was like, I'm not paying that. Yeah. 
So in March and April 2014, the BLM closed some government lands to prepare for a roundup of Bundy's trespassing cattle, which were to be impounded as a last resort after nearly 20 years of attempting to resolve the issue in courts with Bundy, who simply refused to honor any of the judgments against him. Mm. And before anything actually went down, Bundy was sending out letters titled, quote, Range War Emergency Notice and Demand for Protection. Full of sovereign citizen language. That always goes well. Yeah, yeah. And gave interviews with a bunch of sovereign citizen language. I mean, that's, like, a, call, that's a call to arms. It is. That's, yeah. that's exactly what... Well, he was sending it to people like sheriffs and government officials and things. A, yeah. I, I mean, think he did want, like, a showdown at the Bundy Corral with the federal well, government. Well, he got it. Yeah, he sort of did. Uh, but that got him the attention of the Oath Keepers, who are, as we have mentioned, well into the uh, sovereign citizen milieu. And as a result, Oath Keepers and other militias, including many associated with the Three Percenters, came out to Bunkerville to support Bundy. And it's worth noting that according to Stewart's kids in that interview with the SPLC, he hated all of this because the attention was on Bundy rather than on Stewart and the Oath Keepers. Because the only true great militia tradition that will never die is petty, petty squabbling over, over clout. That's yep. what it's really all Clout about. Clout chasing. It's always, the, it's always, always about that clout, baby. Always is. So from April 5th to the 9th, the BLM used horses and helicopters to round up nearly 400 of Bundy's trespassing cattle. Just for a note, he probably owns close to about 1,000 cattle total. And the confrontations really began on the 10th, when pro-Bundy protesters showed up and blocked BLM vehicles. Someone reportedly kicked a police dog, and the fracas was enough for the BLM to just cancel their planned roundup for the day. You gotta start saying Bureau of Land Management. You know, I know, I, I know, I know man. Mean, I know what we're gonna you be mean, talking about but... them a lot. It's gonna add like yeah. five minutes to the show if I say it I out know. the whole way every time. <laughs> Uh, on the morning of the 12th, an armed crowd of Oath Keepers, militia members, anti-government protesters, and general violent weirdos carried a banner that said, Liberty, freedom, for God we stand. Sans punctuation, of course. That doesn't, that, even with punctuation, <laughs> that doesn't really make sense. And these protesters blocked a portion of Interstate 15 for hours. Former Sheriff Richard Mack, who we've talked about as the founder of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, CSPOA, mm -hmm. was there in support. Mm -hmm. And he claims that they had a plan to put women and children in front because, of course, they thought and probably wanted this to turn into a violent gunfight and wanted the optics yep. of women and children being shot. Which I, I just find ironic, if not horrifying, because of how these people on the right always talk about, you know... Al-Qaeda and whatever and, who, mm -hmm. you know, anyone putting uh, the women and children out so they'll, you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, one of the more famous photos from the scene is of a militia member on the freeway overpass aiming a rifle through two K-rail barriers at BLM agents. And the photojournalist from Reuters who got that picture said that one of the there was actually two of them up there with weapons, uh, mm -hmm. said that one of them said, quote, I've got a clear shot at four of them. And another one said that he would return fire if fired upon. I think maybe trying to moderate what the other guy had said previously yeah. is what it sounds <laughs> it's like. like. Yo, chill, dude. Yeah. Like If fired upon, put that second part yeah. in there. Yeah. But as a result of all this, of course, the BLM announced that they were suspending the roundup and the cattle were taken back by Bundy. They, the BLM just left. Mm -hmm. They were just like, we're fucking done. We're not dealing with this shit. Whatever. It is not worth dying. We'll get him in court. <laughs> yeah. We'll just we'll just go back to court. We'll just take anything he puts in a bank. That's why he never puts anything in a bank. Uh, mm -hmm. So a number of people face criminal charges, of course, from this incident. You can't point guns at people. Period. No, well, and especially at federal agents. 
Sometimes you can. Normally not at federal agents. Normally not. Uh, But in 2020, after years of back and forth, mistrials and dismissals, the criminal charges against Cliven and his sons were dismissed due to prosecutorial misconduct because prosecutors suck. They're just... Mm -hmm. They're just bad. They're just bad at their jobs. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it was because they withheld information. And if they had given over that information to the defense, they still would have gotten a conviction of Cliven. But they do yeah. this shit because they think it'll make their job easier or blah, blah, blah. And they play these fucking games. Fuck prosecutors, man. But of mm-hmm. course, that wasn't the end of it. They had gotten a taste for the good stuff, right? And they wanted more. Yep. The Oath Keepers, these sure. other second wave militias who were involved, they tried to engage in some other standoffs. But they really didn't get the attention like they did for the Bundyville one. Um, they did one for two brothers who were illegally mining on public land, but I don't think anyone has really ever heard about that one. But then in 2016, they got another bite at the apple. So in 2012, Dwight mm-hmm. Lincoln Hammond and his son Stephen Dwight Hammond, dorks. You took your, you have your dad's <laughs> first name as your middle name, fucking dorks, were convicted on federal charges in Oregon on two counts of arson on federal land. And the charges stemmed from two fires that they had started in 2001 and 2006, one of which was to cover up their slaughter of an entire herd of deer illegally. And, you know, this is far from the first fire that the Hammonds had started. They regularly Mm -hmm. started fires for sometimes, like, legitimate purposes, like preventing overgrowth and stuff. Yeah, uh, as you do. Getting rid of invasive plants. But they never got permits. And at least one of them escaped their land onto federal property and caused a wildfire. So after trial, the two were each sentenced, Dwight to three months and Stephen to a year and a day, which they both served. But the prosecutors appealed the sentence because it was below the mandatory minimums. And they won. The prosecutors won on that appeal, leading the Ninth Circuit to order resentencing, at which both Dwight and Stephen were resentenced to the mandatory five-year terms for arson with credit for time served. Of course, Mm -hmm. they had sovereign citizen connections and Dwight's wife, after their reincarceration, signed a document supposedly creating a citizen's grand jury, which is just a sovereign citizen fantasy creation that supposedly would, you know, let them make orders that people had to obey. It's not how anything works. And in late 2015, mm-hmm. after the resentencing, the affair got the attention of Ammon Bundy, son of Cliven, who started planning to protest in favor of Hammond in Oregon. And of course calling for the sheriff to do things he couldn't, like prevent the Hammonds from being taken by federal marshals. They always go for the sheriff, man. So throughout that year, 2015, a number of militia leaders and members started to trickle into Harney County, Oregon, where the Hammonds lived. And on January 2nd, 2016, an armed militia group calling itself the Citizens for Constitutional Freedom held a protest march that garnered about 300 people in a Safeway parking lot in Burns, Oregon. And... I just have to note that the Charlottesville Nazis met at a Joanne Crafts parking lot before they went to the rally. Why is it always groceries? The Oath Keepers went to an Olive Garden after the insurrection. This is just more of what (laughs) I always talk about, how these people think they are engaging in valiant and glorious acts, and they're meeting in a fucking parking lot for a chain. It's just... It's, it's hilarious, sad, it's terrifying all it's at the same time. It's embarrassing. Yeah. So while the Citizens for Constitutional Freedom is the group that gets the most attention, in the Pacific Northwest at this time, there's a group called the Pacific Patriots Network, which existed mm-hmm. basically as a coalition of the various militia groups in the region. And this coalition included the CCF, Three Percenters, Oath Keepers, and others. 
So they gave speeches in the Safeway parking lot that day, and before it ended, Ammon Bundy announced to the crowd that he planned to occupy the Malhern National Wildlife Refuge and encouraged others to go Mm -hmm. meet him there, which pissed off some of the other organizers who had no idea he was planning to pull this stunt. But Ammon and his group immediately drove to the refuge and took up armed positions around the buildings and hilariously even contacted a utility company intending to take over paying for the utilities. It's like... This is a federal building, man. That's not how this works. Yeah. You can't just say, hey, we're going to pay the bill now, so like, it's I own, ours. I own this now. Yeah. It's not like if you pay the gas bill, it's your building now. That's not how anything works. Sure. I mean, I wish it was. Yeah. But initially, the cops just stayed away from the compound. I think they probably saw mm-hmm. it as the sad, pathetic stunt that it was initially and figured the militias mm-hmm. would just get bored and leave. But they did set up security measures around the area. And on January 4th, the judge executive, don't ask me what that is, I don't know, of the county emailed Bundy asking them to leave, which was followed by the sheriff who asked them to leave. But they refused, right? And uh, I think the day before that, Bundy had claimed that the whole reason they were there was to get the economics in the county revived. They wanted to take back not just the refuge, they wanted the Mm -hmm. federal government to give up control of the entire Malheur National Forest. Which okay. was not going to happen. Well, yeah, obviously no, not. No, And one thing about this occupation that was obviously, uh, I mean, it was it was hilarious, right? It was that the militia groups claimed to be doing it for the benefit of the community, but the community fucking hated them. Oregon Public Broadcasting reported that at a community meeting at the fairgrounds on January 6th, the crowd was asked by the speaker who wanted the militia to leave, and almost every single hand went up. They were all like, fuck these guys, get out. Right. Get the fuck out. We don't want you here. This is dumb. And also, I do want to plug uh, the podcast by Oregon Public Media, Bundyville, which covers this whole situation in their first season. And then in the second season, they covered what was really interesting, just like a bombing in a small town and its connections to all this stuff. Really interesting stuff. Great podcast. I loved it. You should check it out. But the next day, on the 7th, the sheriff offered to escort the militia members out of the county if they would just leave. But of course... They refused. And at this Mm. time in the first week, despite the occupiers claiming to have hundreds of people with them, most of the media reported that they saw at best maybe a dozen or two armed militants at the occupation. Okay. So other than Bundy, you had a number of individuals there. More would come in the following weeks. But the most important of which was a man named Lavoie Finnicum. Yes, the names Mm -hmm. would all just get more ridiculous one after another. There's too many names. I've lost track. It's fine. Just keep going. Well, Lavoie was a 54-year-old man who desperately, his whole life, had wanted to be a rancher and had tried Mm. to make a living with a horse ranch in Arizona, which he failed at. Uh, He was a Mormon and lived in an FLDS stronghold, the uh, fundamentalist Latter-day Saint stronghold in Arizona, although he does not to appear to have been a polygamist or a follower of Warren Jeffs himself, but he was Mm. part of that community. Uh, by the time of 2016, most of his income came from being a foster parent. Um, and, you know, once his involvement in the standoff was reported on, though, of course, Arizona Child Protective Services removed the children he was fostering and who were, at the time, his only source of income. Um, okay. Of course, when he learned of that, he didn't seem all that torn up, instead saying, quote, Fostering was my main source of income. My ranch, well, the cows just cover the cost of the ranch. If this means rice and beans for the next few years, so be it. We're going to stay the course. Doesn't Mm. seem all that torn up about it. He also wrote himself a novel, which came out in 2017, published by his wife, you'll learn why soon, titled 
only by blood and suffering regaining our lost freedom, which contains the poetic verse, quote, Mom, Mom, I spoke softly into the night as the first flakes of the winter storm began to fall. Why did you trust the politicians and turn in your gun? <laughs> How could you ever believe the government would keep you safe? I pushed back the tears that wanted to come to my eyes. No time for that. It's your basic militia fiction along the yeah. line of the Turner it's, Diaries again. Yeah. It's all yep, the same. Yep, yep. Beating swords into plasters, etc., etc. But Lavoy was inspired by the Bundy standoff and had started illegally grazing his own small herd of livestock in, like, solidarity, basically, mm-hmm. racking himself up a few thousand dollars in fines. And he, quite hilariously, did this by sending a letter to the BLM office that he worked with for his grazing permit just being like mm. y'all are swell people but i don't like the yeah, government anyway. yeah <laughs> so by the second week of the standoff uh the militia presence swelled as both oath keepers and three percenters came to town and set up shops supposedly to protect the occupiers from the state police and the fbi and right. conditions at the refuge were apparently pretty bad of course, despite all being survivalists, it turns mm-hmm. out they were pretty bad at the whole survivalist thing. That seems uh, right. They were running out of food and supplies. Fistfights broke out several times. Uh, people being sent to the grocery store for supplies were arrested for driving stolen vehicles that belonged to the federal government that they had taken from the refuge. And attempts to get their community on their side co- just continued to fail, as even ranchers mm-hmm. opposed them. At one point, they tried to take down a barbed wire fence and ranchers and like be like, yeah, you can use this land to graze. And ranchers like, no, 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 we, we want the fence up. Put the fence back up. Um, <laughs> but Bundy made the claim that the refuge would never be returned to the federal government. So on January 26th, several weeks into this uh, occupation now, several of the leaders of the occupation took two vehicles to speak at a meeting in a neighboring county. Uh, state and federal agents saw this as a chance to try and arrest them all and hopefully bring the occupation to a close. In those vehicles were Lavoy Finnicum, Ammon Bundy, Ryan Bundy, who's a member of the Bundy family, Ryan Payne, who's another one of the leaders of the occupation, and several others. Mm. Uh, as they were going down uh, the road, going towards their, and this is a snowy day, right? Uh, as they're going towards their destination, police pulled out behind them with lights and sirens on, and the Jeep that was carrying Ammon Bundy and another man named Brian Cavalier pulled over and surrendered. And of course, Ammon had a gun on him. Uh, yep. Finnicum, who was driving a white Dodge Ram, refused to pull over for several miles, but eventually did stop. Ryan Payne, another leader of the occupation, was in that vehicle and surrendered at that point. Of course, he also had a gun on him. Mm-hmm. The state police then launched a pepper spray around into the vehicle when the others refused to exit. And on cell phone video taken by the passengers, Finnicum can be heard taunting police, including yell at them to go ahead and put a bullet through him, but that he was going to go meet the sheriff and they could do as they damn well pleased. Okay. Along with, quote, if you want a bloodbath, it's going to be on your hands. Okay. I, I watched, so they're all trying to be martyrs. Yeah, I, I watched this full video. I don't recommend that anyone does because it is a bit disturbing. Um, mm. You know, I, I think maybe I'm just deadened inside and this stuff doesn't that get seems to me as right. much. Yeah. That's uh, true. One of the people in the car could be heard saying, where's the guns? Before they all say they're about to duck down and Lavoy guns it at a high rate of speed. I can't tell exactly how fast he's driving, but it is very apparent on the video. He's going very, very fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Less than a minute or so after gunning it, Lavoie's truck encounters a roadblock made up of police vehicles, which he appears to intend to ram with the truck, which ironically was a Dodge Ram. Uh Uh-huh. Causing them to... That's what it's for. (laughs) 
It's the, right there in the marketing. Which caused the officers at the roadblock to fire three shots at the truck, causing Lavoie to veer off to the side of the road at a high rate of speed, nearly hitting one of the FBI agents who had been set up there at the roadblock. He then immediately jumps out of the vehicle while the, the, the truck is basically stuck in a snowbank on the side of the mm. road and starts yelling, go ahead and shoot me several times okay. with his hands in the air. Asking for martyrdom. Before literally. reaching into his jacket where he had a nine oh, millimeter Ruger handgun. It, what right. appears to me to be a pretty clear case of suicide by cop or yeah. attempted. I mean, maybe he thought it was going to be some heroic shootout and he might make it through. I mean, these mm. people all have those delusions of grandeur like that. I don't. Yeah, uh, but he was shot twice by the FBI HRT team, hostage rescue team, right? We've talked about them plenty of times. A uh, team yeah. member who was standing behind him in the woods and another time by one more officer who was standing in front of him. Um, the cell phone video is is rough. It's it's horrific. Um, their mm. reactions are pretty shocked and horrified. Uh, and after Lavoie is shot... Yeah, you've seen someone shot. Yeah. After Lavoie is shot, uh, the police shoot numerous tear gas rounds and pepper balls into the car trying to get the rest to exit. Um, I think they might have also saw, shot some live rounds at the windows to break them out to try and be able to get that pepper and uh, uh, tear gas in there. Um, mm. And in the immediate aftermath before the video was released, the militias and the sympathizers claimed that Lavoie was cooperating with the police when he was shot. And... I'm not somebody to ever be true. on the sides of cops in a shooting, man. But nah. having watched it a number of times, um, and given the situation, it seems like a pretty clear case of suicide by cop to me. I can clearly mm -hmm. see in the video that he's going for his pocket. He had a gun there. He'd made numerous statements to the effect that they wouldn't take him alive. He had just tried to ram the barricade with his truck. It's just tragic. It's really just tragic. Yeah, it's really um, sad. The occupation went on for several more weeks, finally ending on, ending on February 10th when the last four militants actually surrendered. 27 people were charged in connection to this whole situation. Um, the damage they did cost over $1.7 million to repair. Uh, there were like Native American artifacts in the building that had been damaged because they were just fucking around mm -hmm. and shit. They had broken water pipes. All this stuff, including yep. replacing stolen property. Apparently, they had broken into some state, some safes, taken cash and that other stuff that right. was in there. All in all, you know, from the outside, it would seem to be a thoroughly embarrassing incident for the second wave militia movement. Mm -hmm. But on their side, they got a martyr out of it, which I think yeah. was sort of what they were looking for. Um, Lavoie's name is still invoked by militia types as a person they claim was intentionally targeted and, quote, killed execution style for his beliefs. So it's a, it's a Ruby Ridge. It, it really is. For them. It really yeah. is. Um, now, a lot of you are thinking, Kevin, um, this episode is getting long and you haven't even talked about January 6th yet. And to you, <laughs> I say, well, of course, that's because we're going to have a whole series of episodes in the Lunatic Fringe series covering January 6th which will, of course, include a discussion of the Oath Keepers' activities during the Trump years and how they changed because of Trump, a change that I think shows how this second wave of militia activity has drastically departed from the original movement of the 90s. Um, and as many of you also know, I think, right, um, there's trials going on right now. Yeah, I'm going to jeopardize the trials. Well, not so much that, but I'd like for those to be over, for us to have some resolution to the story by the time yeah, we, we finally get to the end of this Um but, you know, I'm yeah. sort of hoping that, that we get uh, Stewart's convictions by the time we get around to that arc of the series. Um, so there will be at least one other episode in this militia miniseries more related to Donald Trump and January 6th. But we will leave that for another day. For now, 
you know, blessed. Thank God, my brain is mush. I just want to put out at the end of this episode that I have two possible topics for the next Lunatic Fringe series episode that I want audience input on. I like getting people's feedback on what they want to hear. Mm. Um, and one episode that I have right now, um, partially cooked up, right? I got like two pages written, um, is one on the history of right-wing voter fraud conspiracies, which I know is topical. <laughs> Let's uh, so... see how the election goes. <laughs> the other one I have is one that I'm putting out here mainly to pressure Benedict on, and it is on right-wing terrorists and their motivation mm. um and and that is something i'm not talking about you know like people who in obviously racially motivated attacks or uh you know people like the new zealand shooter or anything like that people who are motivated purely like politics of whom we have had several very recently right mm -hmm. the nancy pelosi attack is one that comes immediately to mind obviously the guy after donald the the raid of mar-a-lago uh, who went in with the nail gun is another obvious example. Mm. But there are others from the past the who, are, who also fall along those lines. Yeah, there are, there are others who fall along those lines. And um, I, I think it's something that's worth exploring, how these people are radicalized, what they say, and what that says about them and about the right-wing movement. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want some audience in, uh, input on what we do next, and, and hopefully uh, we're able to do some fun stuff. I mean, we're going to do them both eventually, yep. but, you know, just, just hit us up and let us know what you think about it. I'd like everyone's input on what they'd like to hear coming up soon. But thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, if you just can't get enough of us, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC and become a patron for as little as $1 an episode. For patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, early releases of our episodes, and more. And as always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons. Clifton Stuckey, Pause, Lilith210, A Baby, Veronica Forker, Melissa C. It makes you giggle every, every time. time. JD, George Saulnier, Janet Yutter, Stefan, Shannon Hellman, Utah Outcast, Brent Lee, Dave Barwick, Chris Palmer, Bad Bible Stitches, Mockingbird Nation, Bacaw! Benjamin Carlisle, Dexter, Allison, Megan Ruth, Glowrung the Deceiver, Big Easy Blasphemy, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, AJ Brantley, Taro Tacanon, and Balls Waterson. Thank you all as always for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, don't go into the Capitol, people. <laughs> Whatever happens, don't go into the Capitol. Goodbye. Goodbye. podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.